Welcome to Rock Stories. Today's episode features Chris O'Dell, assistant to Rock's most famous superstars. Your Rock Stories guide today is Victor DiLorenzo. Hello, this is Victor DiLorenzo, and I'm a founding member of the folk punk sensation Violent Femmes. I guess my love affair with the Beatles started in the summer going into fall of 1968 when I was invited over to my cousin's house to hear a new record that he had just purchased. The record in question was Hey Jude by the Beatles. Up to that point, music really didn't mean that much to me, just kind of an auxiliary thing to movies and television, which I was more an aficionado of. I was grooming myself to be an actor, and I certainly appreciated music, but my main impetus was to be an actor. But upon hearing Hey Jude, I fell in love with the Beatles. And from then on, for a period of about four years, I listened to the Beatles exclusively. The Beatles meant the world to me, because not only did they express to me what could be done with music, but also what I could do with my own life. The rooftop at Apple was also the scene of the final Beatles performance together as they filmed a scene for the movie Let It Be in 1969. In an iconic photo from that scene, there are three women sitting near the rooftop chimney. Ringo's wife, Maureen Starkey, Yoko Ono, and Chris O'Dell. Well, the roof was a place where uh, us ladies who worked at Apple used to go sunbathe during the two months of summer in England. <laughs> We'd go on the roof. It was filthy dirty. The rumor, after a lot of discussion about where the Beatles could do a, a live gig to film for the movie, Let It Be, and there were all these different ideas. One of them was the Grand Canyon, which I was kind of excited about. I thought, that's cool. Go do it, sing at the Grand Canyon. Uh, but what happened is that they, four of them couldn't get together long enough to go anywhere other than upstairs to the roof. So that's where it happened. And, and a memo went out, and it was well known, because the roof was, the whole building actually was not in great condition. The memo went out that no, none of the employees were allowed on the roof because it wasn't stable enough. So I was pretty much, I, I, I kind of figured that was my fate, no roof. And, um, and then Tony Richmond, who was the head cameraman, came up to me and said, are you coming up? I said, no, I can't, we're not allowed. And he said, well, yes, you are, you're coming as my assistant. Chris O'Dell lived the rock star lifestyle, which is chronicled in her book, Miss O'Dell, My Hard Days and Long Nights with the Beatles, the Stones, Bob Dylan, Eric Clapton, and the women they loved. In February of 1968, Chris was sitting in her Hollywood apartment smoking a joint and waiting for her boyfriend, Alan, who was two hours late. Alan called Chris nearly out of breath and said she had to come down to the La Brea Inn and meet someone. Little did Chris know, this chance meeting would catapult her career in the rock and roll business. For waiting at the inn was Derek Taylor, 
the publicist for AM Records. Well, he said he worked for the Beatles. He was their press agent. And at that time, I, you know, I was in L.A. from Tucson. Hadn't been there that long. And the idea that I would meet anyone who had even known a Beatle was beyond my comprehension. It was like, no, not really. When he said that, I, did, I just thought, okay, it's another one of those Hollywood stories. And I was mad at Alan because he was supposed to call me earlier. We were going to go meet and have this date. And instead, he's sitting at a restaurant in Hollywood with Derek Taylor and whoever he was and all these other people. But I think at that point, it was kind of like, well, I don't want to sit here. I mean, I was 20. No 20-year-old sits there at home. My roommates were out, so I said, okay, I'm coming. Her boyfriend, Alan, was later married to Lindsay Wagner, who played the lead character in the television series The Bionic Woman. I think he was married to the bionic woman, Lindsay Wagner. I think he was actually married to her during that time. They divorced. After that, I have no idea. Chris lost touch with Alan as her life in rock and roll was just beginning. Well, Derek and I became close, and he didn't drive. And L.A. is a hard town if you don't drive. So I drove him everywhere, and I hated the job I was doing. So I would just hang with him. And through that, I met a lot of people. I didn't realize so many people Derek knew. So we'd go to these dinners and, you know, all these things. And eventually, when he was ready to go back to England, he said, I think you should come to England. You should go to work for the Beatles. Go to work for Apple. It's just starting. Well, it seemed kind of fanciful, uh, you know. And I was working at a record distributorship, and a guy who worked there, we would go out to lunch, and he said, you've got to go. I said, how am I going to afford it? Because, you know, back then you didn't travel that like that. Unless you were really rich. Unless you were from Texas. <laughs> you just didn't travel like that. So he said, well, sell your record collection. I know a guy who will buy it. So, And then I was living with an actress named Terry Garr, who at that time wasn't very well-known. She was struggling still. Derek introduced us and and said, oh, Terry's looking for a roommate, and you're looking for an, a place to live. And so we, so we did. So I moved in with her. And she had a lot to do with it because she kept saying... You've got to go. I've been to England. You're going to love it. And with Around the Beatles, it's fabulous. And she really pushed me to do it. During her first week in London, Chris went to Apple Records to talk with Derek Taylor about job opportunities. Well, I was sitting in Derek's office. This is on Wigmore Street before they actually moved into Savile Row. So this was where their first offices were. I'm sitting in Derek's office, and suddenly in the room next door, which actually was the Apple Boutique office, and I heard a voice next door kind of talking to the girl who was over there, and Derek said, oh, I think Paul's here. I'll be right back. And I went, Paul? on the other side of, of that wall. Oh, my God. It was just kind of... It, the only way to describe it, because for us in the States, they were... We didn't get the opportunity to see. I saw them at Dodger Stadium. And so I had seen them, but they were little spots in the distance, and they just didn't seem real. 
real. They seemed like this kind of fantasy. As it comes into your reality, it's kind of jolting. It's like, oh, up until now, they've been way out there, and now it's like the other side of the wall. I was sitting with my in a chair with my back to the door, and Derek came back, and then a few minutes later, someone walked in and started talking, and it was Paul. And there he was standing in front of me, and Derek introduced us, and I kind of went, hi. And then I excused myself and left. Well, then John and Yoko were sitting out there. I didn't know who Yoko was. And they kind of looked up and said hello. And I just sat down and picked up a magazine and started going, for real, two in one day. Chris took the initiative while at Apple Records and began taking care of the record label's executives and guests. I was assistant to Peter Asher. I'd go to the restaurants and say, I work for the Beatles. Uh, up at, what was it, 90-something Wigmore Street. And do you think you could give me food with plates and silverware so I can take it to the office and I'll bring them back? And they went, yeah, (laughs) sure. (laughs) And it started something because it wasn't that many months later that they had cordon blue chefs working for them. So it, it kind of gave them the idea that, oh, yeah, maybe we could do this here. Chris O'Dell was the assistant to Peter Asher, the head of artist development at Apple Records. What were Chris's thoughts of Peter? Well, he was very shy. I think he still is in a way. He was very shy. He had very red hair. He was very proper, and he didn't look at me. He talked to Derek because of his shyness until later in the evening. We drove him to the airport to go back to London, and he eventually, well, I drove him. He eventually started to open up a little, but not a lot. I mean, he was pretty reserved. He needed someone, and I happened to be there. Peter Asher remembers when Chris came to Apple. She came to Apple looking for a job, I think, and she threw Derek Taylor. I think she'd met Derek. And he brought her in the office. And at the time, I was looking for an assistant. And uh, she, she was very smart and very together and, and, and funny and cute and everything. So uh, we hired her, and she worked as my assistant for, I can't remember how long, but she started off as my assistant in London. Um, that's where, you know, we, we got to know each other, and she was my assistant at Apple. And then much later on, I kept her with me, and she came to L.A. at the beginning of Peter Asher Management, yes, and, and lived in the house. And I had my office in the guest house of this rented house in L.A. at the beginning, so she was working for me then. She, she used to hang out in Derek's office, to be honest, I think more than I did, but that was where the crazy stuff happened, you know. Um, you know, we were on the top floor actually trying to kind of run a record label, and, and uh, but later in the day, yes, you'd end up going down to Derek's office where where more exotic things were happening and there was a full bar. And, uh, and, and Derek, who was a genius, of course, ran that whole thing, managing to do the Beatles PR and you know everything that nobody knew what to do with. Like, oh, Ken Kesey's here with the Merry Pranksters. And I was, oh, send him to Derek's office. He'll know what to do. Chris used to hang out in that zone from time to time, so she probably has better stories than I do. Peter's parents had an interesting background. Well, they were pretty proper English people. <laughs> And they they lived in a a nice, posh part of London, as you would say. He went to Westminster School, which is not a boarding school, but it's a private school. Um, His father was a doctor, and his mother um, was a music teacher. That much I knew. I learned later 
that his father actually um, came up with the name of a diagnosis. Now I'm going to forget what it is. <laughs> Munchausen. That was Peter. Peter's father gave it that name. Peter's sister was quite famous as an actress in London, and she was dating... Paul. And he was living at their house for quite a while. Not at the time I was there, but... For, in fact, he was still dating her when I got there because I went to a party in the first month I was there and he was with her. So she was around, but I, everyone knew of her. She was with Paul. She was an actress. I mean, she was like the better known of all of them. Peter Asher's story along with the rise of the Beatles during the 60s, is chronicled in the third of a trilogy of historical fiction books written by author Ken Follett called The Edge of Eternity. You've obviously read the trilogy, yes. but the part of it that covers the 60s, he, he asked if it was okay to use my story. Um, and indeed, if they're talking about turning the book into a television series, in which case I will be in charge of the music and we will create the music that's described in the book. During the early years at Apple Records, Chris O'Dell met some of the biggest names in rock and roll. She also met a variety of interesting guests at the Apple headquarters. Chris meets the Krishnas and the story of the protective necklace. I'm wearing a protection thing around my neck, so I thought, well, I better wear it today. Because of meeting the Krishnas early on, I mean, they came to Apple to have an appointment with, with, um, with Peter. And Peter and I were coming back from lunch and we saw this weird pickup on the road, red with lots of th things on it, like it's a t color. I mean, there was so much color and all these people walking around and dotes and um, girls, everybody with little white red things on their forehead. And I mean, it was like Peter went, uh oh put his head down like a turtle and took off running almost inside of Apple. And I was like, wow, who are these people? And so I came in and we went upstairs and Peter was like, oh, he didn't, that was too weird for him. And so Debbie from the reception called and said, oh, Peter's appointment's here. And I went, is it the people that were down in the big truck in front? And she went, uh-huh. And I went, okay. And I think it was under the name of, they had booked the appointment either, uh, I think Sam Spearstra, Sam Shunda, Sam Shundar, actually. Um, and anyway, they came in, two, two of them or three of them came in, met with Peter. Peter liked them. And they wanted to meet George and do a recording. They were the Radha Krishna Temple band at that time. So they wanted to deal with Apple. It was around this time that the executives at Apple also had visitors from the Hells Angels. Uh, George met them somewhere. My memory says when he was with Bob Dylan, but don't ask me how that would have happened. And he probably made the mistake of saying, well, if you're in London, let, let me know. And so they heard that as, come to London and stay with us. They basically, they came, actually, they came over with Rock Scully, who was the manager of the Grateful Dead for years, um, and Ken Kesey, who the author. I mean, it wasn't like this kind of crazy 
crew. I mean, there were two Hells Angels, but there were also, uh, and in fact, I only learned this recently, Peter Coyote was there. So it was an interesting group. And yes, they did get upset because the food was too long in coming on a, our Christmas party, and so they started getting rambunctious. They liked me. We hung out together. Chris O'Dell had made her mark at Apple Records and soon started enjoying many of the perks that came along with her job. Chris was going to the Isle of Wight to see Bob Dylan. Her boyfriend, Bill, also worked at Apple. They were going to take the train and stay at a B&B like any other couple. Well, Bill worked at Apple also, and he um, was the assistant to Peter Brown. So he got a lot of the personal requests. He had to take care of the Beatles. That Peter Brown's job was to take care of the Beatles' private needs, their own personal needs. So Bill Oaks, Bill Oaks worked for them. And so he and I were kind of dating, and he's, we decided, let's go to the Isle of Wight, and we'll go on the train with backpacks, and we'll stay in a B&B, and we'll or camp out and just do it like everybody else does it. Because even though we were just everybody else, we were in such a, a hollowed environment all the time that we began to feel special, you know, that we were that close to the four. So he and I were all ready to do that. And the night before we were leaving, he got a phone call from George saying, Bob Dylan forgot his harmonica and he needs it, would you go tomorrow morning, buy a harmonica, and take it, there'll be a helicopter waiting at um, the heli heliport in London, take it there, and they'll fly the helicopter down here. And okay, so Bill says, we're gonna be a little late getting that train. Well, then suddenly George called back and said, well, you might as well just take the helicopter down here. So we got on the helicopter with, our, with the harmonica, flew down and landed in the backyard of the house that Bob had rented for that in, in, on um, the Isle of Wight. And as we were, the, as the helicopter was coming down, this head stuck out, came out of the top floor window, just watching us, and I went, Bill, that's Bob. <laughs> Chris O'Dell and Bill went to the Dylan concert in style, sitting backstage with John and Yoko who now extended an offer to Chris and her date they couldn't refuse. We were gonna stay in the B&B overnight and catch the train back to London. And um, John saw us and he said to Bill, hey, do you, go, do you guys wanna fly back with us on our plane? We have a little plane. And we went, okay, sure. So we got on the plane, it was a little plane. And back then they were props. And this, and, and we got on the plane and I, it was John and Yoko and maybe someone else who worked for John and Yoko, Anthony Fawcett and Bill and I. So it was just us. And they lit up a joint. And there was only a curtain separating us from the pilot. And so I smoked some of it. And I suddenly went, oh, my God, the pilot's getting high. What if he starts, like, climbing to a great height? Then the weather got kind of bad. I wasn't the only scared person. Then John and Yoko started chanting Hare Krishna, and I went, uh-oh. As we leave John and Yoko and Chris O'Dell stoned on an airplane chanting Hare Krishna, this is Victor DiLorenzo. 
We'll see you next time. You'll have to tune in for part two of Chris O'Dell on the next episode of Rock Stories. Right now, it's rock tale time with Rick Carr, the chancellor of the College of Rock and Roll Knowledge. You know, there's a time in everybody's life that you do something that's like, hey, that was really cool. A number of years ago when I was producing live radio broadcasts, I was doing a show for a radio station out of New York, and we were doing the show live from a swanky hotel bar in Beverly Hills in California. Part of my job as a producer was to have interesting celebrities, rock and roll stars, that type of thing show up that the station could do interviews with. At that point, one of the ones I was lucky to get was Ozzy Osbourne. I've been trying to get Ozzy to do shows for me for years, and fortunately, Zach Wilde, who was his guitar player, had been doing them for years with me. So we had Zach come in one day, and he was actually in rehearsal with Ozzy for a tour, and after he did his interview with us, he went to rehearsal, and he told the people, hey, I just did this, it was a lot of fun. So the powers that be, namely Sharon, heard that it was a fun thing, and I had left messages with them trying to get Ozzy to come by. I get a phone call saying, hey, Ozzy wants to do the show. Now, that's really cool. I have to go through the necessary requirements because we were doing this at a bar. They didn't want him drinking, let's put it that way. So I had to get three bottles of Diet Pepsi, 16-ounce, cold. And the thing was, if Ozzy walked near the bar, we were to pull him away. Okay, so I did that. So anyways, Ozzy shows up, and so I go over to greet him, and now earlier in the day, one of the guests that I had was Spencer Davis. Now, Spencer had been doing shows with us, like, forever. We were really good friends. So I'm sitting here, and I'm talking to Ozzy, trying to explain what's going on, and all of a sudden, Ozzy grabs my right arm and starts squeezing. And I'm like, okay, what did I do? And I look at him, and he's got this look of awe on his face, and he goes, that's Spencer Davis. And I go, yeah, Spencer. Spencer. And he said, do you know Spencer? And he goes, and he just shakes his head. He's like, no. So I was like, oh, here, I'll introduce you to him. And that's when he squeezed my arm even more. Oh, my God, he's impressed. So, hey, Spence, come here. You ever met Ozzy? Uh, no, I haven't. And I look over and Ozzy is, he's trembling like a 13-year-old because Spencer Davis was one of his idols. This is English rock and roll. This is royalty. There I am sitting there, Ozzy's still squeezing my arm, and he's like a little kid talking to Spencer Davis. After Ozzy was to do his interview, my next guest was Little Richard. Ozzy'd never met him either. That was a fun career. Ask us questions or tell us about your encounter with rock and roll fame. Maybe we'll feature your question or story on an upcoming Rock Stories podcast. Rock Stories is written and produced by Mark Smathers. Executive producer, Gary Reynolds. Production director, Mike Hoffman. The chancellor of the College of Rock and Roll Knowledge is Rick Carr. Come join us next time for the conclusion of our featured guest, Chris O'Dell, assistant to rock's most famous superstars. Till then, this is Rock Stories. Rock Stories.